Well, hello, everybody. This is Rob Fredette with HodgePod, and I have a special episode today. We're going to be talking radio, the history of radio, how it's evolved over the years. And uh, I have a special guest today. It's Michael C. Keith. Um, he is a we're known as a renowned radio broadcast expert. And uh, I was a student at Dean Junior College, which is now Dean College in the mid-80s. And uh, he was a uh, instructor, professor of mine when I was there. And I could not think of anybody better to talk about radio than Michael C. Keith. Michael, welcome to my podcast, and thank you for joining me. Hey, Rob, it's good to be with you, and it's good to uh, make contact with you again. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So tell us a little bit about your background. You have an extensive background in radio, and it's pretty interesting. So how? Uh, what, what is your background in radio? Because I know it's extensive, yeah. so please explain. Well, uh, when I got out of the service in the 60s, uh, I went to a little radio school, and, and, and I got my first job up at WTSL uh, in New Hampshire. From there, I ended up uh, ultimately at WRCH in Hartford, and then in Miami at WVCG, and then back up in Providence at WLKW. And it, it, it kind of worked my way right out of the business. During that time, I was getting my degrees and, and then decided uh, to go into college teaching and to teach, uh, uh, to teach radio. And Dean College was actually my first full-time uh, college teaching job. From there, after, uh, I was there 12 years. And after that, I went to uh, uh, George Washington University in Marquette as visiting professor. And then in uh, 1993, I joined the faculty, the communication faculty at, uh, uh, at Boston College, uh, where I continue to teach to this wow. very day. That is that is extraordinary. And I can remember back when I was at uh, Dean Junior College, it's now Dean College. They had a great radio station there. You could uh, get hands-on training. Uh, you and other professors were excellent as far as talking about radio. And I still remember to this day learning more and more about radio. I'm a radio geek, I like to call myself. So uh, what is uh, what is the state of radio now? We'll talk about the history of radio, but radio has seemed to have uh, have taken a few hits, but it survived, but it's changed in the last, what, 20 or 30 years? Yeah, you know, uh, when I was teaching at Dean, uh, radio was in a very different place than it is today. Uh, uh, it was still the primary place where people went for audio. It was still the primary place where young people went for new music and music. Uh, and and over the years, technology has bumped into that. I mean, uh, uh, with the advent way back in the 80s of the Sony Walkman and then, uh, 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 you know, the CD player, more and, poor, more and more people were being drawn away from radio for music, music mm -hmm. radio. Now, don't forget, too, music radio was the principal reason for uh, its audience. Most people listen to radio for music. Not not all, but that was the number one draw. After that, it was talk, talk radio and, and, and other types of things. So it was being kind of bled of its uh, principal audience in the 80s and, and, and in the 1990s. And then in the 1990s, we had a growing uh, uh, Internet uh, presence. And suddenly we had satellite radio and then we had uh, web radio and then and then we had new devices 
like the iPod and the iPhone mm-hmm. and the iPad and, and, and whatnot, which offered music streaming services, which in, in many respects were the coup de grace to music radio. Music radio is pretty much a dead thing now, uh, uh, mm-hmm. with the exception of maybe some niche formats, specialty formats. Uh, I teach young people. Uh, when I went to Dean, that's where uh, young people were going to listen to music. Now, when I ask my students, how many of you listen to radio? Uh, nobody. Wow. None of the 20-year-olds are listening to radio anymore. Now, that bodes very darkly for radio. If you don't have the 20-year-old today, uh, you're not going to survive because the 20-year-old becomes a 30-year-old and the 40-year-old. And if there's nothing really to draw them back, and so far I don't see what it would be, uh, you're a dead medium ultimately, uh, and especially in terms of music. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Radio does pretty well in terms of programming for sports aficionados, sports radio, uh, probably is is the number one draw today for, uh, to tune in radio. You know, it still has a market. But when you go looking elsewhere and you look at other forms of programming, uh, you know, they don't have the audiences. And hundreds and hundreds of stations are going silent. They can't sustain uh, their existence anymore. And so... Uh, that you know, you ask me about the state state of radio. I think the state of radio is is very gl- uh, glum, very dark. I would not want to own a radio station right now unless it was WBZ or one of the legacy stations that have held on. Uh, if I found myself owning a radio station, I really think the only way that you can hold on to the audience is if you're hyper local hyper local that you're doing something that that listeners cannot find on the internet and and that would be uh uh local events local issues local things that are happening in your community but for the young audience they don't give a damn about locality they're not worried about what what's happening in my community you know what issues uh, appeared before the the local uh, town council. I mean, until they get older, until they own property in a town, until they have kids going to the schools, there's just very little interest in localism. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, radio will hold on to uh, its uh, uh, people within its signal area uh, who live there, who are citizens of that, and and who are concerned about uh, taxation, the quality of education in the community, things like that. But that's such a narrow mm-hmm. uh, uh, area compared to, uh, you know, I, radio, you know, it was a true mass medium 30, 40 years ago. The bigger question now is, is, is there mass media? Are there mass media? I should say correctly. Uh, uh, what defines mass media anymore? Right. Uh, the days of CBS uh, television and mutual radio gone. I mean, it's just gone. Oh, so, I, remember, I remember you're in the 80s. I mean, where I lived in northern north of Boston, there were like local radio stations and there were four or five stations in that area and they were all owned locally. But now it's all conglomerate corporations owning radio stations. Yeah. When did that all change? Well, uh, that was the. Was 
that was a telecom act of 1996 mm-hmm. that that said hey you know an, an individual or company can own as many radio stations as they want. No longer the 10, 10, 10, 12, 12, 12, 18, 18, 18 rule. It was thrown out of the window. So a company like Clear Channel saw gold in that. They thought, oh, my God, you know, we'll just buy up as many stations as we can in a major market like Boston. And we'll own the advertising dollar in Boston with our six stations in Boston. We'll just, mm-hmm. you know... And that's what they did. They bought up as many stations as they could. At one time, Clear Channel owned a thousand, over a thousand radio stations. They owned one tenth of every uh, of every station in, in in the country. They owned one in ten, you know. And but what was the coup de gras was they looked at the stations they owned, like in Boston, and they said, "We own six stations, and there's six different properties." And we're paying money for those six different properties. So let's sell all those properties and we'll put them in a mall. We'll put them in a factory. We'll put them all together, consolidations. Got it. Then they went a step further and figured, well, why have local talent in, in, in a thousand markets when we can originate talent from our, our facility in Houston and we can beam adult contemporary? We can beam country. We can beam top 40 uh, to to all of the stations that we own that are doing that format. And we can get rid of all the staffs. And in the process of doing that, they pretty much got rid of localism, too. The stations became generic sounding. They didn't have a local flavor. And they and this was done at the worst possible time, because that's when uh, the Internet began offering music streaming services. People, young people had little devices that they could then download their favorite format from one of these streamers that had no commercials, no DJs, and they could essentially program their own radio station. So it was a collision between uh, uh, the, the loss of localism and, and the power of the listener to create their own, if you will, their own radio station. Mm-hmm. And so that that was a, a, a profound blow uh, to, to uh, radio stations around the country. And wow. it is right now. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and, and you know, uh, radio lost its youth market. There's no medium that can lose its youth market in, 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 and survive in the long term. You know? Yeah. And the uh, formats... Uh, back in the eighties and talk radio, I can remember local talk sto- stations in Boston. They all had local, local uh, talk show hosts from early, early morning to night till overnight. Right. Uh, and yeah. they don't have that well, anymore they... either. They just have it's syndication. And when did syndication sure. really come into play for, uh, for radio? In the nineties, in the nineties. I mean, syndication has been, been there since the seventies, mm-hmm. but it really, really, you know what, when they eliminated the fairness doctrine uh, during the Reagan administration, and they said to stations, you no longer have to worry about uh, fair and equal broadcasts. We don't care. You can have all uh, uh, right wingers on your station. That's fine. And that's when, the right essentially took over talk radio 
with Rush Limbaugh and a bunch of others, they dominated the scene in AM talk radio throughout the the, the late eighties and the nineties into the two thousands, mm-hmm. and 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 so right there, it lost half of its liberal listeners and it lost its youth market, and and ironically, when radio went on the skids because of the internet. Uh, radio really lost its right-wing constituency uh, that began blogging uh, and 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 choosing to spend their energies, efforts, and money on the internet and no longer on AM radio. What so is the uh, just, big, what's the biggest company right now in um, in uh, ownership for radio stations at this time? You know. Uh, it, it's probably still clear channel, but I'm not up on the latest stats at all. Uh, you know, clear channel then found itself with a boatload of stations and their audience dwindling because of what it had done through consolidation and also by what technology had eclipsed the value of the radio receiver. Uh, and then it began to try to unload it had paid top dollar mm-hmm. for the radio stations it bought, and then it found that it could that it couldn't unload those stations for the money it spent for the stations. So it was selling them at a, a much reduced a much reduced price, and uh, and it you know I don't know how many stations Clear Channel now owns or if it's even still out there, you know, but. Uh, uh, you know, so that that is kind of the evolution of of the economics of radio since the, uh, since the nineteen eighties. I uh, I'm looking right now eight hundred. I just pulled this off the internet the other day, getting ready for this. Uh, eight hundred and sixty stations for iHeartRadio. NPR yeah. has a thousand. Odyssey has two thirty five. Cumulus has four oh five, and then uh, Salem Radio has a has a a, a group of radio stations as does ESPN radio. And there's other ones below that. So the, the mutual broadcasting systems, that's cumulus. Is that correct? Yeah, that's gone mutual. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and, and a, a lot of those that you mentioned aren't even uh, ownerships. NPR doesn't own, right. You know, they, they syndicate, their their programming same with espn and whatnot so the big time huge monstrous owners uh have been working pretty steadily at unloading uh, because a lot of the stations are no longer terribly profitable interesting so radio has taken a hit uh you know with streaming music and the internet and then uh satellite radio as well Looking at it, though, radio has a function as well. It's a, it serves a purpose of entertainment, news and information, emergency broadcasts, and education, learning something new. Do you see that uh, maybe coming back? Yeah, I mean, you said Reese earlier that you don't see radio maybe it's in its gloomy phase, but do you see radio maybe making a comeback at some point? Or uh... I don't think it'll ever be what it was. Mm-hmm. Its glory days are gone, you know. Uh, but I don't see it becoming extinct as long as it holds on to some of the basics that that people uh, used it for. And as already indicated, I think if you have talented people on the air, 
if you have talented people on the air and they're adequately promoted, people are going to go find them. They're going to want, you know, we all do. We like talent and, and whatever form that comes on, whatever form that comes in. Uh, also, again, I think the more a station is, is a member of the community, the more a station reflects the gestalt of the mm-hmm. community and is seen as an integral part or, or a good citizen in the community, it will find listeners. The, the problem is the new generation uh, has a low valuation of localism. Uh, you know, in terms of talent, sure. If there's, if there, the, the problem is there's a, a thousand different audio options out there. You, you have a podcast. That's another option. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're good and, and you have relevant material and you have a genial personality, you're marketable, but you're not going over the, over the terrestrial radio. <laughs> yep. You know, and and so my outlook for traditional terrestrial radio uh, is is more negative than it is positive. And I think I think if radio is looking to regain its its former glory and thinks it can do what it used to do, then it's going to fail. You know, it has to redefine itself and, mm-hmm. and redefining itself for a lot of stations is having a presence on the Internet that's a problem because then they're up against 10,000 other audio options. Whereas if they're in a city like Springfield, Massachusetts, and, and, you know, uh, you know, and, and they're doing local and they've got the former mayor who had a big following and he's on the air, then, you know, then you'll have, uh, you'll have a piece of the pie, but that piece of the pie is never going to be, uh, uh, what it, what pieces of pie used to be, just not going to happen. Now, here, an analogy I use, and it's a poor one, uh, because uh, the you know the the uh, subject I employ mm-hmm. is that uh, it used to be that radio stations were like the in a in a market uh, where like the anchor stores on a mall. You know, and now they're just one of the stores on the malls. But now we're in an age where malls are closing, folding, you know, because people are resorting to shopping on the Internet. Well, people are resorting to listening on what's on the Internet. And it's a very crowded space. How do you single yourself out to survive? How do you get advertisers, you know, when you're one of 10,000 out there and and you're showing that you have, uh, you know, 280 listeners, <laughs> you're, you're never going to get major advertisers with 280. You're not going to do it. You know, you might get some local mom and pop shops, but so it's, it, yeah, it's like the daytimer, uh, you know, that that's on that, that used to be on the air from sunrise to sunset. Mm-hmm. And with that 250 watt signal, it was a battle royal long before the Internet to, to get advertisers. And it depended on localism and, and really 
dominant, uh, dominantly appealing personalities. And it was still a, a horrible battle. Well, uh, you know, uh, move that over to the Internet and compound it by a thousand times. And that's what you've got. You know, uh, you know, here it is. You know, I'm being just subjective about that. This is the way I see it. I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, all I can operate is on my my experience and my instincts that tell me that uh, 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 that I wouldn't want to own a radio station. I just not know. <laughs> I'd run yeah. away from that, you know, unless they were selling WVZ for five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. WVZ broadcast in the thirty-eight states across the country. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, when I first started uh, when I broke out of college and got my first job. I worked at WHDH as a producer, mm, and uh, before I got on air again. Um, and I remember you had the news director, you had news reporters, you had the program director, assistant oh, yeah. program director, production crew. Uh, the, you had superstars. You had Jess Kane, who Jess was Kane. the morning man for 30 years, and he had huge listenership. Huge. And they, yeah, and they could demand top dollar for advertisers. And they were sold out a lot of times, you know. Larry Glick, he, Larry Glick, Larry uh, Glick. in his later years uh, used to come after Jess Kane, and he was a major, major draw. Eddie Endelman was a major draw oh, in yeah. Boston. I remember all those for him. Um, I remember, uh, oh, yeah, I remember WBZ in the 60s and 70s. You know, they were playing They were playing music. Mm -hmm. And monster people like Carl DeSouza and Dick, Dick Summers, and I mean, they had huge followings. And then over on WMEX, WIMAX, had Arnie Wu Ginsburg, who was a huge drum. And, and that's, you know, that's a thousand years ago. That doesn't exist anymore. Uh, can, it, can it exist again? Who's to say? But I think the smart money is no. Yeah, I can you remember... Know. Uh, there was uh, WBOS was in the uh, opposite side there, and oh, yeah. the station had its own on-air own staff. And now, like you said, with the consolidation, that's like, like it could be like 40, 50 jobs of people who mm -hmm. are working consolidated, working for um, you know, with, with a pot of stations that they're at where they're at. Um, they're selling for all the stations, right? Sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah. They had two engineers from forty stations, you know. I mean, when I worked in radio uh, at stations uh, like WRCH in Hartford, beautiful facility, full-time engineers, 24-7, you know, uh, 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 news department, DJs. I was the production director there, and I, I did an afternoon shift, copywriting department. It was, it was glorious. It was, it was the time to be in radio. Yeah. I can't imagine what it must feel like to be in radio anymore. I just can't imagine it. Uh, I, I, I would just find it just, just, you know, just a different animal and, and, and depressing. I mean, I've got former students like you who are, who are in radio in Boston, Joe Cortez, yep. you know, he does the eighties show syndicated and whatnot. And I'm always amazed that he's still gamefully employed there where he's been for 25 years. But that's owned by one of the big uh, uh, radio corporations, and and they still find a means of generating revenue from what he does and, and whatnot. So, uh, but it, it's uh, it's sparse. 
Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. Uh, in my summer uh, vacations and also going home for my breaks, I would go work at uh, Kurt Gowdy had a couple of stations in Lawrence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he had, uh, we had WCGY and WCCGM yeah. in Lawrence, Mass. And uh, I'd go home and uh, work there and do sports. And uh, Dan Roach was on Channel 4 was uh, yeah, was there. Um, he was there as well. Um, but I remember, you know, uh, you, you talked about local. We'd go do barbecues every Friday during the summer. Um, they, they, uh, the listeners could bring, uh, you know, uh, 50 of their favorite friends and guests and family. And then they had the swap shop shows on Saturday morning. Everything was local music talk. And it was just like, it was like its own little niche inside those cities, uh, for the Merrimack Valley. So I can see where you're saying, I think if you, those stations get that local feel to it, I think they could draw in more listeners. I think you're right. I think so. I, it, it's just a, it's a tough road and, and, uh, uh, it, it requires resources and a lot of the small stations that all of us have worked at, they don't have any resources anymore. They're they're, they're They can barely pay two people who keep the station on the air. It's very, I, I've been to two or three stations uh, a few years ago that were, were all but crippled and and it was, <laughs> it was so sad and they're gone they they, they just hmm. couldn't they couldn't raise local revenue people weren't interested in spending five dollars a commercial on the station because they were aware that people were just not listening anymore you know so you know i mean radio had two really rich lifetimes, the the golden days of radio, you know, the salad days of radio, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Mm-hmm. And then when TV came along, it, uh, radio was decimated for a time. It reinvented itself with music. You know, rock radio came in, the transistor, miniaturized radio, gave it a whole new audience, and it flourished. In fact, it had more people listening than it did during its golden age. But now it's into its dark age where it's mm-hmm. lost the bulk of its followers, the bulk of its advertisers. Uh, and and it's it's you know, it's on life support in many respects. There are some stations, you know, uh, sports radio stations, major markets that are affluent that are making money. But there are there are, there are exceptions. I can't point out one, and I'm sure your listeners might be able to, but I can't really point to one super successful music radio station in the country. Yeah. I can't, you know. Uh, So so radio is in its third stage, its final stage, as far as I can tell. Now, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You know, someone may come down the pike with, with a way to revivify radio but i've been in it long enough and it could if if it could be revivified i think i would sense it know how if i suddenly woke up tomorrow and somebody said you own a 5000 watt station in worcester uh and you and and you got to keep it on the air uh well obviously you look around at what's there you know and and if someone's doing a shitty job with uh, sports radio, well, maybe you can do it better and maybe you can grab off some listeners. That's a tough game. Uh, If there's nobody doing local at all and there's no really 
catchy personalities, I might lean in that direction, try to lean in it, because Worcester's kind of going through a bit of a renaissance now with the, with, uh, the Woo Sox have brought a lot of the Red money in. It's beginning to look, you know, so, it, you know, timing is everything too. But like I said a while ago, I just, I wouldn't want to be faced with that challenge. You know, wow. so I really wouldn't. You know, over the years, uh, the syndicated radio shows have taken uh, taken a, a like a 180 or maybe a 360. You know, you, back in the 80s, you would have uh, Larry King at night, Bruce Williams at night, um, sure. Art Bell. Yeah. Uh, and then like local syndication, you'd have medical shows, but then they'd be replaced, you know, by talk shows. Uh, Rush mm-hmm. Limbaugh, I remember late 80s. And then oh, we sure. have other ones now. Um you know, that are like Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity. Yeah. So how was, uh, how was the tone of talk radio change? It's oddly changed. I remember years ago when, you know, you could have a civil discussion on radio and uh, recently Jimbo Hannon passed away. He's probably the last of the great uh, talk show hosts where he, you know, didn't degrade people on the phone and always was a, a gentleman, but uh, not knocked in the shows today, but he was, uh, you could listen to that show and know you weren't going to get a yelling match. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. It, well, uh, radio has been totally po- politicized. Uh, most of the talk radio shows that you have on lean hard to the right. Uh, and and that's where they're getting their listeners from. You don't have any real uh, Jim Bohannon. You don't have any uh, real uh, talk meisters that are on there that bring more intellectual or or, or, or balanced cultural uh, discussions on radio. You have to go over to NPR. You have to go over to public radio. Uh, you know that's where. Yeah, uh, right now maybe just like the country, which is split in two factions, uh, the conservatives, if they're listening to radio, are listening to AM radio, or maybe a few. Uh, 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 FM talkers, and if you're liberal, you're listening to public radio, right? Uh, stations that are licensed commercially uh, aren't aren't putting uh, liberals and progressives on the air because if they can pick up right wing syndicators, they stand to make a few bucks with them. Uh, I have yet to come across a station that does a, a decent mix of of either side. I mean, of both sides, and, and because they're of the opinion that if you've got right wing talkers on there and you interject a, a liberal talker, that'll that'll turn them off. They'll leave you. They'll go someplace else where they can get all the right wing uh, uh, programming they want. Uh, it ends up being hardcore right and and liberal and progressive uh, listening to public public radio or other forms of, of progressive radio i still listen to uh all different formats i also listen to the nighttime shows if i'm up i'll listen to uh coast to coast with george norrie or uh ground zero with clyde lewis and uh you know some during the days you have uh some other talk show hosts that uh are uh, a little bit controversial so what is uh right. What's nighttime TV like? Uh, I, I think uh, that adds a different little element at night as well with uh, uh, Coast to Coast and uh, these other shows at night. Uh, well, 
I think it pretty much is the same situation. I think if, you know, if, if you're looking for political talk and you're a Republican, you're going to seek out, you know, uh, that, uh, that political ideology, no matter where it shows up. If you're online, there's tons of that stuff that you can get. Uh, and if, you know, if you're a progressive, there's tons of that that you can get. Mm -hmm. Um, so listening and viewing, uh, have, have become so political, uh, uh, and politicized by what, what has happened in our political system that, uh, there doesn't seem to be any middle ground anymore. Yeah. yeah I remember in the, uh, listening to talk radio in the eighties and nineties, and there was, there was a lot of middle ground and yeah. uh, there was a lot of middle ground. You could, you could hear people have a conversation on the radio and it was just, you know, just a nice way to listen to, you know, different points of view. And like you said, uh, not getting political here, but you know, there is a, there is, it's, it's like a shouting match all the time. And sometimes yeah. it, it gets rather boring. It, it, it really does because everybody's angry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Nobody can give an inch. Nobody can say, <laughs> well, you know what so-and-so, you know, the Republican senator the other day said, you know, when you really think about it, it makes sense. You, who's doing that? You, you know, uh, so there's, there's, there's just no, there's just no feeling of camaraderie or friendship or we're all in this together anymore. It's us and them, you know, and, and, and and the and it's just a hostile atmosphere, uh, uh, and uh, you know, is that going to change? Is that going to somehow recede? And people are beginning to become more uh, tolerant of of your fellow American uh, because you know. I mean, the fact that we're so uh, uh, gnarled up because half the country is against abortion and half is pro-abortion, instead of saying, well, I can see the wisdom in being against uh, the termination of a pregnancy, except I still support the right of a woman. Mm -hmm. You don't hear anybody saying that anymore. <laughs> you know, you got, you know, uh, fetus killers and you've got, you know, abortion advocates. I mean, you know, and that's, you know, that that's that's kind of sums up, you know, the, the, the prevailing gestalt of, of this nation right now. And that's, you know, that's caused us problems. You know, it's caused us January 6th. It's caused us, you know, factions that clearly support a madman, you know, a person who uh, has such narcissistic and, and dictator tendencies that it's obvious to those who are full-blown members of that person's cult, uh, how did how did we get there? How did we get in that situation? You know, it's not all the fault of conservatives. <laughs> you know, it's not all the fault of liberals. At one point in in the last century, we lived together, we fought together. You know, we work together yep. and, and, uh, in the last 20 years that has, and, and, to, you know, to be honest, the media is uh, pretty responsible for that situation because we ended up with advocacy news. We ended up with ideological news. We ended up with news that purported to be, you know, fair and balanced and, and wasn't, and people who were indoctrinated 
to that fair and balanced or liberal viewpoint suddenly saw nothing else but that viewpoint and that took us to where we ended up so fractious you know so 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 divided the internet despite its great virtues and its its remarkable uh uh, uh benefits has turned into also a very toxic place you know you you've got alex jones You've got, and and they have they have big followings, substantial followings, uh, and, and you've got the Oath Keepers, and you've got all of these groups because of the uh, nature of the internet, where it's not under the aegis of the federal government. You've got all of this wild and crazy stuff that's out there. Uh, that's uh, influencing powerfully insu- influencing people who haven't tried to get the other side of the story. They haven't tried. So now they're deeply rooted in a belief system that is that is counterintuitive to most intelligence and that is, uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, 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 dangerous uh, to the unity of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh I am now of the mind that there needs to be governance of the internet. I was always opposed to that. I always liked the idea that there was, uh, you know, uh, media uh, that was completely open to all viewpoints. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good, I suppose, in its, you know, theoretical stage, but in its application stage, that has become a big problem a huge problem in this country. Now, uh, when I say I'm, I, I'm not pro-censorship, I am pro-constitution uh, 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 and pro-maintaining the well-being of the country. And, and, and when the well-being of the country is threatened by ideologies that are so out there, and so potentially damaging, then I say, okay, we need governance. We need some governance. We're kind of at that, you know, radio was this benign thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you look back at it, I know in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of complaints about AM radio. You know, it's all right wing and they're all, but but the right wing that were over there weren't, weren't as extreme in nutcases as what you now find dominating or not dominating what you find all over the internet. You know, Rush Limbaugh was a windbag from a, uh, from a liberal's perspective, but I don't recall him saying, get out there and, 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 and invade the Capitol building and bring your guns. And, you know, he didn't, he, you know, he, he didn't do that. Uh, I was on a committee of the radio hall of fame that inducted him into the hall of fame. Uh, I wanted Howard Stern in at the time, but he didn't. He didn't make it. Eventually, he did. You know, but uh, but uh, uh, talk radio was ninety percent of it. I should say was pretty benign. You know, they had their right to express their views. You know, the fairness doctrine was gone. So if they wanted to be all right, so you know that you know the government. Uh, uh, agreed with the elimination of the fairness doctrine, you know, but then there there was two or three percent of that hundred percent that that was advocating extreme right wing views, 
uh, a lot of uh, uh, extremist groups, including the KKK, were, were using the airwaves to recruit and indoctrinate. And that resulted in, in, in my book that was co-authored with Robert Hilliard, Waves of Rancor, which looked at extreme right-wing radio uh, and, and uh, uh, it's as relevant today as when it was published in 1999, mm -hmm. even more so. But in 1999, we, we were talking about the internet, you know, we, we were talking about broadcasting in shortwave, the shortwave band, you know, uh, and uh, uh, that book ended up, uh, ended up in the White House, and it ended up being on President Clinton's official summer reading list. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Surprised it was one day I woke up, and I looked at its Amazon rating, and I went, what has happened? <laughs> the next day, it was in the New York Times and in and, and Time magazine. And, uh, and then we had uh, people like Rush Limbaugh and, uh, oh, God, who was the, the uh, one of the... Uh, 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 oh God! The White House uh, plumbers during Watergate that he had a, oh, a G. Gordon Liddy. Yes, he cursed us in his show. He said that book by Hilliard and Keith is a bunch of blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, but fair enough. He had his opinion, and, and it, it was certainly uh, anti-extremist elements, uh, and and yet. You know, it was a knee-jerk reaction by Lumbaugh and Liddy because uh, we never really classified them as extremists. We just said that their broadcasts led to extremism. The fact that they were on there and preaching against liberalism and this and that and whatnot, I think fanned the flame of the extreme right wing. That's, you know, that's all we said. But in any event. Uh, uh, it's comparing apples and oranges now, uh, 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 talk radio and, and internet blogs, uh, uh, political talk radio, political internet uh, blogs, Very, you know, because anything goes over on the right, except not everything goes because, because uh, Alex uh, Jones uh, mm -hmm. was nailed. And, and I was really happy to see to see that. As he should have been nailed. Oh, for uh, Sandy Hook. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So anyway, so you uh, you had mentioned uh, that you were uh, voted for Rush Limbaugh and Alec um, and uh, Howard Stern. Howard Stern. Yeah. Um, what what other uh, talk show hosts have you uh, have you did you have a chance to meet both of them, or what other uh, hosts in uh, in the radio yeah, world met, have you had a chance to meet? Uh, uh, Larry King. Wow. As a matter of fact, he blurbed uh, he blurbed a couple of books of mine. He blurbed my, I had a memoir published uh, almost twenty years by Algonquin Books, and and he blurbed that that memoir. Uh, uh, so uh, so I knew him. Well, I I met him in person at the Radio Hall of Fame ceremonies because I was one of the overseers of that, and he was the host. Mm -hmm. He was the host of the Radio Hall of Fame ceremony. Uh, and uh, Rush Limbaugh was there, and I sat at a table right next to him. Studs Turkle, a lot of these, you know. Wow. Uh, so I got to meet a few of them, but but you know, not not uh, as many as uh, I, I do have a 
you know, a, a, a couple of interesting stories about both of those guys, but I won't takes up too much time to to tell you off mic someday we'll talk. (laughs) Larry King was a, uh, Larry King was a, um, a true pioneer of late night radio. When I was growing up, I remember listening to him and um, you know, he'd have all the guests he used to have on at CNN and he was really, uh, really a pioneer. Don't you think? Oh, he was, he, he really did uh, uh, made, all night talk radio a real thing because because of his popularity he was getting real big time advertisers who generally stayed away from all night radio you know uh i was on i was in radio down in miami in the early 70s at wvcgwyor and then later at winz mm-hmm. and but when i was at at uh wvcg uh larry king was a local hit, not national. He was only in Miami, and he was on WIODAM radio right. at night. Uh, IOD stood for Wonderful Isle of Dreams when call letters were... And he got into trouble. He got a donation <clears throat> given to him to convey to the candidate, and he didn't do that. He took the money to the racetrack because he was addicted to the ponies and then he was found out and then he was humiliated he was fired from his tv show local he was fired from wiod and a couple of my buddies we would go to wolfie's which is a deli on biscayne boulevard this is 45 years ago and we would sit there and we'd see larry come in after the scandal, all by himself, crestfallen, he'd sit at the counter all by himself. Nobody would talk to him. Nobody hmm. would approach him. And we would sit at our table and say, what a stupid so-and-so. He blew a great career. <laughs> Little did we know, two years <laughs> later, he was, he'd be doing, he'd be doing uh, you know, coast to coast. And he became the biggest talker in the history of radio. So he he was like the the phoenix rising from the ashes. You can't keep good talent down. He he just had a brilliance uh, yeah. on there. And and then after that, he he became Larry King. You know, uh, but uh, uh, he had and a then, great connection on the radio. And I remember he after each show would end, he'd say going to Duke Zebert's. He'd always <laughs> talk about his lunches over at. Uh, you see all the power players in DC at lunch and yeah. um, he was able to get uh, politicians on his show too, which was uh, pretty, pretty awesome as well. So he was a pretty good guy. I, I had some, some exchanges with him and I was just this academic. I was chair of education at the museum of broadcast communications in Chicago. So I was involved with the radio hall of fame, blah, 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 you know, but uh, uh, he came in to host that show and Nobody picked him up at the airport. This is Larry King coming in to host the Radio <laughs> Hall of Fame show. And I came in to the uh, cultural center where the museum was, and he's standing in the hallway. And I know him as soon as I see him, I say, hi, Larry, can I help you? And he says, yeah, yeah, where, where's, where am I supposed to go? He says, I don't, he said, you know, I just, I was just dropped off here in the cab, but, but the building's huge. And I said, you were just, yeah, he said, nobody met me at the airport. I had to get a cab in. 
So I, I took him into the president's out out in Bruce Dumont, who's a nephew of Al Dumont, the Dumont Network. And I told him, and he was furious. Somebody dropped somebody dropped the ball. But but Larry King, he but he but he was good natured about it. He wasn't wow. indignant or anything. He just kind of you could tell behind his voice was half a chuckle that it happened. And then I saw him witness. I witnessed him host the Radio Hall of Fame coast to coast on a dozen stations live in the banquet hall where we all sat. And uh, I never saw anybody as relaxed and graceful as he as he was on a live on a live connection where he was introducing the people who would induct mm. the, you know, these people like Susan Stamberg of, of, of all things considered studster and whatnot. And he, uh, he would, he would walk off the stage, uh, uh, you know, between inductions and, and he'd be talking to people and the director was melting down. Where's Larry? Where's Larry? And then they'd be going nine, eight seven and they'd be saying larry and larry was like at three he just meander back up bam on like i mean just on never wow. missing a beat you know and i and i thought there's there's that incredible there's that incredible gift and that incredible talent this guy has you know and then he he, he very generously uh, uh blurbed uh my my books and then i actually interviewed him for another book so Wow. So, yeah, that was neat. That you That know. is neat. You come across people like that because he was huge when he was on radio, but he even got hu- uh, bigger when he was on CNN, which was incredible. Oh, yeah. I find that I find that fascinating that I like those little stories of inside base. I call it inside baseball. I like that. Um, and in fact, another person that you'll, you'll know that I became connected with was Paul Harvey. You know, Paul What's Harvey, that's right? Elaborate uh, on that if you could. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I worked at, when I was chair of the museum, uh, he was a big benefactor of the museum. His wife, Angel Harvey, uh, was the connection with the museum and Paul Harvey. Uh, so, uh, uh, and she would drop into my office and say hi. And occasion, occasionally she'd have him by the hand and and he would come into my office and i was gog because when i was in radio 25 years we we carried paul harvey you know <laughs> and now paul harvey is there in fact one of my, a favorite photograph of mine is being on stage with paul harvey as he's straightening out my bow tie <laughs> wow paul, paul harvey and then uh and then he blurbed uh, a book of mine and then he also i interviewed him for a book of mine called Talking radio, uh, where I also had contact with, I mean, you'll drool if you hear some of the people that I was interviewing, from Walter Cronkite to Charles Collingwood to Robert Trout to Casey Kasem to all of these people. I, wow. uh, because of my connection as chair of the museum, I had great access to all these people. So I was living vicariously, wow. <laughs> you know, by, by meeting these people. You know, uh, you mentioned Casey Kasem. They still play his, uh, they still play his, uh, on a local station here in Memphis where I live, they still play his uh, top 40. Um, you know, they'll play it back from whatever year, you know, uh, when he was in, he was just, he was incredible. I mean, when you listen to his delivery and and the music yeah. back then. And, you know, 
he was he was such a sweet guy. He was just a he was just a real warm guy, you know. Mm. Uh, and I appeared on stage. One, I've got a photograph right here, but you don't have time to to have me walk to the other room. It's, <laughs> it's right there. But uh, and then I talked with him on the phone. I'd call him up. Uh, Hi, Casey is Mike, and he would just talk about. He'd talk about what he was doing in the house. They just bought a house, and his wife kind of wanted this big house and oh my god it's too bad i can't i can't do i don't know what to do here and, and whatnot but he was just open and just you know down to earth and very frank you know and like we always hear from people oh you know uh, despite uh, this person's fame and image he he was down to earth and a real person but a lot of them the limited number i i met were very much uh, uh easy to easy to be with yeah, I remember when I worked at uh, I worked as I helped out on the sports huddle on Sunday nights with Eddie Endelman oh, yeah. and Jim McCarthy yeah. and Mark Wickin. And I remember listening to Eddie Endelman in the early '80s on Sports Huddle on Sunday nights. That was like the yeah. must listen to sports show. Eddie Endelman was a was an A lister '80s, '90s, '70s. Now, did he pass away, Eddie? Uh, I think he's still living in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, I have I have not heard anything about that. I know I think he was living living in South Florida somewhere. I was at a birthday party with him. Uh, uh, Joe Cortez, who's right out of Dean, graduated yes, from Dean. Uh, but by this point, he'd been on Boston Radio 10 years and then made it pretty did it, did well with the 80s show. When he had a birthday, Eddie Edelman, who was at the same station, and, and those people were over, and I was at the birthday party. And, and they were a bunch of fun-loving easy to be around guys, you know, so it was kind of neat yeah. uh, being around I, them. Anyway. Yeah. I, uh, I, when I worked on the sports huddle, I worked uh, at HDH and WEI when it became a sports station and um, Eddie could not have been nicer to me. Um, he was very, uh, very, very cool. I couldn't believe I was actually helping out on the show he was on. It was like when I first couple of months, I was like in like awe of him, but um, he was very nice and he had me get into one of his hot dog safaris in the early nineties at WEI. <laughs> he says, you're going to do it. And then one other time he, on a Sunday night show, he said, uh, I need you to do me a favor tomorrow. And I said, well, what's that? He goes, I need you to pick up Kevin McHale at the airport. And I said, all right, I'll go pick him up in my car. It's no problem. Well, he had a limousine <laughs> ready for me to pick up, pick me up to go to the airport to get Eddie, uh, Kevin McHale for a sports show that they were doing for Channel 56. It was uh, Roger Clemens, Andre Tippett, Cam Neely, and Kevin McHale. And Kevin McHale was coming in from a plane from Philadelphia. And that's where you can go back to the gates, you know, to the gates and wait for him. And his plane was late. And I was on the phone with the producers from Channel 56. And I said, his plane's running late. And Kevin comes off the plane. I was like, oh, my God, that's Kevin McHale. <laughs> I said, oh, hey, Kevin, wild. I'm going to pick you up for the show. Whoa. We got the limousine. He could not, Kevin McHale could not have been nicer, but uh, Eddie Endelman was so awesome. Uh, uh, it's one of the memories I have working in radio. He could not, and he was like total sports back then. I really, yeah. it was really awesome. When I worked at WVCG in Miami, they were connected with the Miami Dolphins during their perfect season year. So I was in, uh, I did a couple of programs with, with a couple of the Dolphins, Paul Warfield. And, wow. And, you know, just, and Nick Bonaconti, who was the captain of the team, I called him by accident on a private phone line and woke him up because I was supposed to be in contact with another Nick. It was the PR person for the Dolphins. 
to get information. And I, and I say, hi, uh, uh, Nick. And he goes, groggly. Yeah, that's Nick. I said, okay, listen, I need some copy from you. <laughs> and he goes, you need some copy. And this is when he's the captain of the Dolphins in the perfect season. And then it dawned on me. He's no, no. This is Nick Bonacanti. I almost dropped the phone. I thought, oh God, I'm in trouble now. You know, and he laughed and he turned. He said, no, he's he got the wrong Nick. <laughs> oh then, wow! So anyway, yeah, we all have stories, you know. Oh yeah, I love the stories. I mean, there's the, 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 just the work. Like when one last thing, when I worked on the sports huddle, Bob Lobel would come up, Sean McDonough, oh, Will yeah, McDonough, um, Roger Clemens came up. It was just, uh, it was just a lot of fun and. Uh, just like those are memories that you have when you uh, work in those uh, well, yeah, settings. So work, yeah, especially when you work in a big market like Boston. If you worked in Springfield, you'd never see these people. No, but you worked at a big station, and so you have those. The, speaking of EEI, they were just in the news today. They they dumped a couple of their big. Uh, speaking of things changing, uh, one guy w- had played at the Red Sox for oh, a long Lou time. Oh, Lou Maloney. Yeah. Yeah, he got, they, yeah they, I saw that. Did you see that? Yeah, he's gone. And somebody else has gone too. So, you know, I'm thinking maybe they, they were, you know, they were just too rich for their blood at EEI. Uh, wow. and, and maybe they're having to downsize their budget too. Now, wow. Who knows? Well, Michael, Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation about radio and uh, learning about some of the uh, – the intricacies of uh, your experience and also the people that you've met along the way. I uh, thought that was fascinating towards the end and just the whole conversation. So um, I thank you very much for coming on my podcast and taking some time out. It was uh, quite extraordinary. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you having me on Rob. And it was nice catching up with you after 30 years. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, yeah, one know. Little- one real quick thing. I remember I was yeah. working at WGAO um, oh, yeah. in 1986, and I was working at the station when the Challenger, uh, you know, blew oh, up in the air. That I was, was standing in I was standing in Roger's office when that blew up. Yeah. You know, do you do you remember uh, Vic Michaels? Yes, I think and I do. Rich yeah, P- the name rings a bell. What about Rich Pizzullo? No, nope, I don't remember okay. that name. Okay. I just, I've been gone from there for 32 years, you know, so, I, 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 but, but Vic Mike's still there, you know, still working the place. Wow. That's just incredible how this time flies, but uh, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really do appreciate it. Yeah. Stay healthy and prosper. All right. Take care.